I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of Trade Guys, we'll talk about Blinken's visit to China, the renewed U.S.-Mexico tomato dispute, and the House Ways and Means Build It in America Act. All that and more on Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. Happy to be back on the show for Andrew. Uh, Bill, that means you're getting out of NFL updates. Congratulations on that one. Looking right, forward to we... not having to talk about that. Yes. Before we kick off in earnest at the shelter, we just wanted to thank one of our behind-the-scenes staffers who has been invaluable to our work, including the production of the podcast. Bill, if you wanted to say a few words about him. Yes, we owe a great debt of thanks to uh, Jaffet Quitson, who has been our technician and made all this possible for the last year and a half plus. Jaffet is not leaving CSIS. He's moving upstairs to join the Southeast Asia program as a researcher. So this is a step upwards for Jaffet, which I'm very happy about for him. It's sad for us because it means he's not going to be in the shoal chair anymore, but it's a step forward. But we owe him a debt because those of you who listen here, Scott and me and Thibaut and Andrew, you don't hear Jaffet, but he is behind the scenes making it all work and making sure that links are correct. And then at, at the back end, accumulating the various recordings and helping our ER team with the editing to make sure that what comes out at the end is a polished, finished product. So Jaffet, we'll miss you, but good luck in the next job. And because you're only going to be one floor away, uh, I suspect we'll be seeing you a lot. Uh, you've certainly made us look good for the period of time you've handled the show. So thanks for everything. And we certainly needed to look good because yes, yes, we can't yes. do it on our own. <laughs> we, we cannot do it all by ourselves. Believe me. And thanks, Jaffet. It's been helpful to my transition too, especially when I've gone on these episodes. While we're at updates, let's go through a quick, more trade-oriented one, and that will be the, the Taiwan bill was just passed in the House on Wednesday by voice vote, approving the first agreement signed under the U.S.-Taiwan initiative on 21st century trade. Trade, guys, that seems to be a remarkably quick turnaround. What do we make of that? Well, Thibault, you just stole the update. That's what, that's what I was going to say. The House <laughs> passed it on a fast track, voice vote. Then it went, I do have one more update. It went to the Senate, and Senator Wyden tried to get it through by unanimous consent yesterday because the, the Senate's going out for a two-week recess. And there was an objection from Senator Cotton of Arizona objected. I didn't sound like he objected on the merits, but he made the actually fairly rational observation that it might be better if people actually had time to read the bill um, before they were expected to vote on it, which is a common issue. So it's not passed the Senate yet, but it sounds like it will. To my knowledge, the administration is still not taking a position on it. I think the uh, signs are growing here that this thing is going to pass overwhelmingly. So my guess is in the end, the president will either sign it or allow it to become law without his signature, because I think if it's uh, vetoed, he'll face a even crankier Congress on this particular issue. I mean, the lesson here, there's several, but one of them is don't mess with Congress when it feels its prerogatives are being usurped. This was not, this happened to be an issue on the merits in the sense that Congress supports the Taiwan agreement. But the real issue was Congress believes that they should have a voice in the agreements and they should have a voice in approving the agreements. And they've stepped up now and are about to do that on Taiwan 
and I expect this will be the first of a number of bills. I think it's good news. First, it's Senator Cotton, first he's from Arkansas, but he, his objection was was not substantive. It was, let's, let's read the bill before we jump in. And uh, so I, I do think it will pass by a lot wide margin. I'm delighted to see Congress step into its enumerated power of regulating foreign commerce. It's right there in Article 1, and I'm glad to see them do it. Most importantly, this is looks like, like a new way to, uh, for Congress to engage versus a general grant of what we used to call fast track. Those bills, or most recently called Trade Promotion Authority, were general grants. They were relatively useful, but they were really difficult to pass. They were easy to attack and hard to defend for uh, proponents of trade because they were general in nature. And what Congress has done is found a way to make a specific trade bill subject to its authority. So it's novel, at least in recent times. This may be the way we go forward, and, and rather than general grants of, uh, of authority. And let's see how it works. That's a really good point. It finesses the problem that I've talked about before on the podcast that our little working group has been wrestling with, which is when does an agreement go to Congress and when does it not need to go to Congress, which turns out to be a complicated legal question. But if you write a bill that says that this particular agreement is going to Congress, you don't have to deal with that issue. You know, by passing the bill, you've made a decision that we want this one. And I think you're going to see it on IPEF. <clears throat> I think you'll see it on uh, the America's Partnership for Prosperity, Economic Prosperity, APEP. You may see it on various bilaterals that Congress decides need to be pursued. Just yesterday, Senator Carper and Senator Tillis introduced a bill that would authorize negotiations on um, trade agreements relating to medical equipment and medical devices. And again, specific. So Scott's right. This may be the wave of the future. We may not ever see another TPA bill. We may just see a series of these things, which from the congressional standpoint is good because it reinforces their Article 1, Section 8 authority. From the executive point of view, long term, it's not going to be welcome because it's effectively a constraint. Because in the end, what it says to the executive is, you can't negotiate unless we tell you it's okay. Yes. And this could have been avoided had they gone and asked for the authority and worked with the Congress to achieve it. But they decided not to. And not without warning. You know, a number of people in 2021 said to Biden's folks the same thing that we said to the Obama people in 09. You need to get this because you're going to want it, you know, and you're going to need it. And now is the time. You've got a majority or 50-50 in the Senate. You're brand new in 2021. You haven't irritated anybody yet. Go for it. And the, the Obama answer, same situation, was, no, we're doing health care. We don't have time for this. We don't want to spend political capital on it. The Biden answer was, we're doing build, build back better. We're doing infrastructure. And you can't say that's a wrong priority. And in fact, presidents get to set priorities. But this is one they'll pay for down the road because the day is going to come when they're going to want to do a trade agreement. And Congress will have established the precedent that they're not going to be able to do that without congressional permission. So right. our two-minute asterisk, uh, Tebow, turned into a, an eight-minute rant. Sorry. That's what I get for stealing your thunder at the beginning, <laughs> Bill. I understand. But yes, let's move into our usual topics. And the first one would be the Blinken visit to China earlier this week. Obviously, his visit culminated with a meeting with Chinese leader Xi, and he also met with the top diplomat Wang Yi and a foreign minister Ching Gang. Obviously, that was meant to be a major diplomatic milestone, given how U.S.-China relations have been going recently. But it's debatable, apparently, whether the bilateral ties are actually going to improve. Blinken indicated recently at his meetings with the senior officials didn't really yield any major breakthroughs on the issues that divide them. So trade guys, I want to get your take on the Blinken visit. What do you think came out of it? Well, 
was a low bar and he passed the passed the low bar. I think the assessment you just made was a good one. Nothing substantive came out of it. I, but I don't think anybody expected anything substantive to come out of it. It was intended to change the mood. The gossip beforehand was that the Chinese really wanted our economic officials to visit because they've got economic problems and they wanted to talk to Secretary Yellen, Secretary Raimondo in particular. And the U.S. was hinting that that wasn't going to happen until after the Secretary of State got his visit, which the Chinese had been resisting. So now that that's happened, you may see more high-level visits from American economic officials, which I think the Chinese would welcome. There was a vague agreement to continue talking. And I think that uh, he, uh, Secretary Blinken and, and uh, Ching Gong also agreed that there would be working-level groups at lower levels without specifying who those were or what they were going to talk about. The disappointment was there was a real push to restore direct military-military dialogue. From the U.S. point of view, that is basically a safety and crisis avoidance mechanism, you know, because we've had, you know, narrow misses in the South China Sea. We've had narrow misses in the air at different times over the years. And the U.S. defense people would be a lot more comfortable if they had a direct line to their counterparts in Beijing to try to defuse friction when it occurs like that. Um, and the Chinese uh, declined to do that again, partly, I think, because they're um, the equivalent of, 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 our, of our defense secretary, their defense minister, is subject to U.S. sanctions. So uh, that's awkward for them and us. So that was, uh, I think, a significant disappointment. But overall, I think it improved the mood and opened the door to further dialogue. Yeah, look, it's, it's hard to criticize these face-to-face -face visits. Uh, they usually are beneficial at some level. But I, I think there are two revelations that happened on the commercial side that are important to note. The first is how interested the Chinese are in U.S. commercial officials showing up and talking about commercial problems. It's something that's a little understood, particularly when, when our, our friends on Capitol Hill really get rolling on their fears about China and we talk about you know how China's eating our lunch or doing this or that to us and what a threat they are. And they, they talk about the big trade deficits. But one of the things that happens when you when an economy like China runs a big trade surplus with the United States is when the United States economy slows down, China gets the unemployment because we're importing all those goods from China. We'll import at a lower level. So any factory closures, the factories are closing in China, not here. Now, that's a short-term matter, but it does reflect the difficult economic conditions that China's facing right at the moment for a number of reasons. But there's probably some business to be done, and there's an opportunity to advance a number of issues outside the commercial sphere by helping decrease the pressure that China's feeling on the commercial, on their economy. So that I found revelatory. The second was comment by the CEO of Raytheon, Greg Hayes. Now, Raytheon is one of the five top five defense contractors, very important to a national security organization in terms of the private sector supporting the military. But Greg uh, Hayes, the, the CEO, made a, what, what in Washington is called a Kinsley gaffe. It's named after Mike, Michael Kinsley, who was the editor of, the, I believe, The New Republic. And he explained a Washington gaffe is when someone inadvertently tells the truth about a situation and everyone's horrified that it actually got out of the public. And the truth that Hayes told about Raytheon's business is we can't, we can't decouple from China. Are you kidding? Uh, his quote was, if we had to pull out of China, it would take us many, many years to reestablish that capability either domestically or, or in other friendly countries. Uh, Raytheon has several thousand suppliers in China. He thinks about maybe 500 billion of trade that goes from China to the U.S. every year. 95% of rare earth materials come from China. 
There's no alternative for some of these products. So there's a message in there. And I think because Hayes is a member of the private sector, he's obligated to tell tell the truth and both uh, truthful. Uh, his comments need to be both truthful and non-misleading. Those are the rules on commercial speech. He's, he's shooting straight here. And I think it would be useful for the administration to take those comments and stop talking about decoupling press releases and start to grasp specifically where is their U.S. strategic security interest in finding alternative suppliers, focus on those areas, and realize that there's a ton of the trade between the United States and China that is not going to be affected one way or another in the near term by slogans. So we got some work to do commercially, but at least those two revelations provide a set of next steps. I think we've moved away from decoupling. They've they've dropped that word, and Ursula von der Leyen from the, the EU rescued them by coming up with a new word, which is de-risking, which I think is a more accurate description of what's happening. Companies are not necessarily looking just simply to leave China. Some are, some will for their own reasons. But what they're mostly looking for is what Scott described, which is finding vulnerability points and then creating redundant capabilities somewhere else so that if the Chinese cut them off, or, you know, this is not just about politics, there could be an earthquake or a hurricane or a typhoon and or COVID, you know, and the factory closes. In that situation, you want to have more than one option. And I think that's what's going on. But Scott said something else that I think is very interesting that I hadn't really thought about, but and we need to talk about it more in the future, which is that dependency works both in both directions. And that all the talk of the United States is how we depend on China for minerals, for rare earths, for take your pick of whatever the product is, where we're dependent on them and we need to not be dependent on them. We need to be uh, resilient. At the same time, you know, the fact that they sell all this stuff to us also means they're dependent on us. And when we stop buying, uh, Scott's right. The factories in China are the ones that close. Now, it's more complicated than that because when we stop buying, it's in part because we're having a recession here. So there's plenty Which of pain. No there's plenty of pain to go around. But the idea that that you know dependence is all in one direction is 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 not correct. And I think it's useful to be reminded of that from time to time. Right. And I'm sure the Modi visit is sort of highlighting that diversifying push from the United States, at least already many semiconductor companies are investing in India and taking those losses away from China. Anywho, moving into our next topic for trade guys, a topic that's very important to me because Bill and I have written about it and because it's a topic that's ripe for trade funds. Group of Florida tomato growers, uh, the Florida Tomato Exchange or FT, filed a request with the Department of Commerce uh, last Friday to terminate a deal suspending anti-dumping duties on tomatoes from Mexico. Uh, trade guys, can you walk us through why the growers filed that request and how that has been an ongoing issue in, in U.S.-Mexico trade? As, as Thibault said in, in the article, this is an issue that's ripe for discussion. And it's a long, sad story. And I, full disclosure, when I worked at the National Foreign Trade Council, our member interest was basically on the side of the Mexicans, and we uh, opposed this effort vigorously. This has been going on since NAFTA in the early 90s, because what NAFTA did was phase out tariffs. So the then existing tariffs on tomatoes were over time phased out. And the Florida tomato growers found themselves at a competitive disadvantage. And their response to that was to file an anti-dumping complaint, complaining that the Mexican farmers were dumping their tomatoes in the United States, meaning selling below the cost of production. And they won initially. And what happens when you win, if you win and, and nothing gets in the way, 
is ultimately additional tariffs are put on designed to offset the amount of dumping. But there's a piece of the law that has been used now five times in the tomato case where the complaining party, in this case, Florida, can come in and say, let's negotiate what's called a suspension agreement. And a suspension agreement is one in which the two parties, in this case, the Florida growers and the Mexican growers, so it's not just the governments, it's the parties to the, the case, get together and they reach an agreement on pricing, which then allows the Commerce Department to suspend the dumping duties as long as the agreement is honored and in place. Now, people like these agreements because uh, can, they like them on both sides because the dirty little secret is they're price-fixing agreements. And basically what happens is that, in this case, the Mexicans agreed to sell at a price that was high enough uh, that the Florida growers thought they could compete with. And the consequence is the Mexican farmers make more money, the Florida farmers make more money, and the consumer gets hosed. And that's what's been happening for the last 27 years. The suspension agreements come and go because periodically the Florida growers decide they're unhappy with them. Sometimes they're unhappy because economic conditions have changed, costs have gone up, and the price that is fixed no longer does the job from their point of view. Sometimes they're unhappy because they think the Mexicans are cheating. These agreements get reviewed periodically. I would say it's, they don't just sort of sit there. And as I recall, the last time the Commerce reviewed some particular companies that had been accused of cheating, they Commerce concluded that they were not cheating and they were complying with the terms of the agreement. But you know the way the law works, you know, if the if the plaintiff is unhappy, uh, they can go to Commerce and ask them to eliminate the suspension agreement and reimpose the dumping duties, which would be certainly bad for the Mexicans. So uh, this has happened, as I said, they're now in their fifth suspension agreement, and so there's a tendency to negotiate because that's better for both parties. It's better for everybody but the consumer. The Mexicans have tried to turn this into a, a quality and competitiveness case. The Mexicans argue that basically they're doing well in the marketplace because their tomatoes are better. They're vine ripened. They don't use zephylene gas to ripen them. They have the ideal climate. They can grow them over a longer growing season than in Florida. And uh, Mexicans say we make a better product. The Floridians dismiss all those arguments, but also say it doesn't really ma- doesn't matter if your product is, is better the law relates to pricing here, and uh, it's not a quality question. And so here we are. So the, the agreement is once again in jeopardy. My expectation is once again, there will be a negotiation and there will probably be a new price fixing agreement. Bill makes the right point, which is suspension agreements are a nice way of saying a government imposed price fixing arrangement, which had were the government not involved would violate the Sherman Act. It would be a violation of, of U.S. antitrust law and punished on that basis. But we reward it because it's done with the government's cooperation. But the consumer winds up on the short end. And I think what you have to do is look at this situation and look at agriculture in general and realize that factor endowments do matter. And after 27 years, so you know, keep in mind, this 1996 was when this started. President Bill Clinton was running for re-election in 1996 was still his first term. If Andrew Andrew were here, I'd mention that the new look Baltimore Ravens had a quarterback named Benny Testaverde on the starting for them. So there's a long time ago, and this has gone on for a very long time. It may just be that Mexico has some factor endowments that make a better tomato, but this doesn't seem to be solving anything. I would note that it happens a lot in agriculture. Agriculture free trade is a great opportunity for specialization. Back in the days before the US-Canada free trade agreement, there was a Canadian wine industry. The Canadian wine industry was heavily protected by tariffs. They made 
absolutely insipid, awful wine. It was grown mostly in the Niagara region around Lake Ontario. It's one place they had the climate to do it. It was pathetic stuff and it was really overpriced. And But it was all you could buy in Canada. I happened to live there at the time. NAFTA liberalized trade in wine. And so there's no way that those Ontario growers could compete with California wineries because of the factor endowments. So rather than just exiting the business quietly, they specialized. They created something called ice wine, which is now distinctive a distinctive mark known around the world, sells at a price premium, and it's unique to Canada, unique to Canada's growing conditions. And I think the the, the, the wineries and the part, parts of the industry that developed and branded and marketed ice wines is doing much better now than they were doing back in the days of 1980s alcoholic grape juice that they were making at the time. So there are ways around this that don't require price fixing, but we haven't found it in tomatoes. I can tell you that ice wine is a wonderful product. There is there is a, a, a other trade issue that lurks behind this, which is the desire of the Florida growers to have special rules for seasonal products. And their argument is that it's it's not like steel or shelving or bookcases or aluminum foil. It follows a growing season. You know, there's a certain kind of economics that goes along with it, one of which is spoilage and market clearing. You know, your t- tomatoes don't sit on the shelf for six months. I mean, if you don't sell, if you don't sell your, your coil of steel, you know, it can sit there. But if you don't sell your tomatoes, they rot and you throw them out. And what that leads to often is basically market clearing pricing where uh, producers will, if they haven't sold it by a certain date, they'll cut the price in half because it is better to make half as much than to make zero, which is what you're going to get if you wait another week and the product turns green or brown or whatever color it turns. But uh, And the Florida growers have occasionally tried to promote special dumping rules for seasonal vegetables uh, nationwide. And they've run into uh, a lot of resistance from other farmers who don't want to do that. Uh, and the main reason they don't want to do that is because the other farmers export a lot to Mexico. And they're concerned, rightly, I think, with retaliation. We sell Mexico a lot of corn, for example. And if you're a corn farmer, you're not too excited about going down a path that might lead uh, Mexico to put tariffs on corn, which is what they periodically hint that they're thinking about doing if if we start doing that uh, to them. Scott, I really like your time stamps for the first tomato row in 96. <laughs> but of course, with that, I wouldn't even be born for another three years, but... <laughs> I don't want to rub it in too much. So we're going to move on with our last few minutes with what's been going on on the House Ways and Means Committee. The committee along the party lines mostly approved the Build in in America Act. Chair Jason Smith, who introduced the legislation, said it it would protect supply chains from China by eliminating subsidies for electric vehicles that have become a windfall under the loose critical minerals regulations of the Biden administration. Uh, However, other committee members criticized it. The Build in America Act, according to them, would fund tax breaks to big corporations and special interests by repealing the IRA's energy tax credits for middle-class families, and it would also stunt U.S. climate goals. So let's break it down together. Bill and Scott, how does this act aim to change previous pieces of legislation, especially the IRA? Well, I think the big picture is last time we had a Republican House of Representatives uh, in 2017, they passed a tax bill, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, signed into law by President Trump. They did it under a process called reconciliation, which gives it a 10-year life and some fairly strict rules in terms of overall there has to be deficit reduction. There's a, there's a specific formula 
for how you get to uh, a bill that can only needs 51 senators. But be that as it may, that was passed, signed into law in 2017. But it was a compromise package. And in order to keep it so it qualified for reconciliation, the, the tax writers had to make certain of the provisions that they liked a lot expire early. So that's when personal tax rates were cut, individual tax rates that we pay uh, were lowered across the board. But there were also things like the research and development tax credit. Some of these provisions are now beginning to expire. And it looks to me like the prime mover here, the big idea is to try to maintain or extend the existing provisions as long as it's possible. Now that takes money, that at least what Congress considers money, which means if you're going to spend more to keep tax provisions in place, then you need to find a, a source for that money. The source they have found is electric vehicles and batteries. It's a fairly big source. And I think this is what, what I would where I would turn to current running comedy called subsidies. And it's a play in three acts. Act one was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022, which was filled with a, a set of rules about how to manage these subsidies for vehicles and batteries that the industry had some comment on, but it was it was scored. And then the cost of the bill to the taxpayers was based on the restrictions that governed the subsidies. Act two comes about when there's a lot of complaints from foreign governments that this is discriminatory from parts of the industry that says it's not enough. We don't like this cap. We prefer this one. And the politics take over. But in act two, what you have is someone in the administration or some agency, in this case, it's Treasury, who played Santa Claus, which happened about February of this year when uh, the Treasury Department issued the rules for collecting the subsidies. And in many cases, they were more generous than anticipated, or they allowed for businesses to get into the battery, the battery production business or the electric vehicle business uh, in an accelerated way. So as I understand it, the Joint Committee on Taxation scored the battery part of this subsidy at about $30 billion a year. It's now running at about $150 billion a year. So it, it, it's exceeded its estimate by, by, by a factor of five. And that, of course, came to the attention that begins Act 3 of the Republican House, which is needs the pay force and found some place where the government thought it was going to give a subsidy of, of X. It's giving it a 5X. And so the if we cut the subsidy, we can go spend that to do our tax bill. That's as simple a way as I can get at what I think is going on here. It will be a very partisan fight. Keep in mind, the IRA was pretty much a partisan bill in the House. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017 was absolutely a partisan bill in the House. And so this is the kind of thing that we do with that, that passes as tax policy nowadays. Sorry, that was almost a rant. But Bill, there are other provisions here I didn't cover that I don't fully understand. So No, the only thing I add, that's a wonderful explanation. The only thing I'd add for our, our listeners who are not tax experts, when Scott says the provisions of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act expire, it means what it says. They expire automatically. And the only way they can be renewed is by a further act of Congress. It doesn't work the other way around, that they stay in effect until they're repealed. The reason, and the reason is what Scott said, the, the, the Reconciliation Act framework requires leg the legislation that's going to be enacted under that framework to uh, be deficit reducing. And it, and it enforces it over a 10-year time frame. 
So you have, when you do the accounting, you have to be able to make sure that over the full 10 years, you're going to end up with a net deficit reduction. What that has meant in practice is if you're doing something very generous in the form of a tax cut, you often have to have it expire before the end of the 10 years in order to produce a revenue increase in the latter years that will offset the revenue losses in in the former years. That's what happened here. And so things Republicans like very much are going to start expiring, I think, in 2025. And uh, the reality is that that's all going to happen. You know, if you don't want that, if you want them to expire, all you need to do is nothing. And that will happen. So the burden is on the Republicans to pass a bill and get the president to to sign it if they want to continue these tax cuts. And I think Scott's right that this is what it's about. The effect of it is, and this is also, I think, typical of, of, of uh, kind of typical of a Republican approach, is the, the, the electric vehicle area, the credits that they're maintaining are the ones that accrue to business, and the ones that are being sacrificed are the ones that accrue to consumers. And I think you can make a good argument, and Scott began it, with, that this is going to end up costing the government a lot more money than anybody expected at the time because the tax cuts are turning out to be popular. And maybe that would require a revisit just on the merits. But it also uh, suggests that the Republicans seem to be less anxious to create consumer incentives in this this particular uh, sector. Maybe that's just because that's where the money is. We'll see. But I mean, the irony of all this exercise is the bill has no chance in the Senate. I'm not even sure what its fate will be on the House floor because this was a committee vote after all. But even if the House passes it, and if they do, it'll be by party line or near party line, it'll go to the Senate and, and be DOA. So if once again, the Congress is faced with the reality in a divided uh, Congress, if you want to make something happen, you've got to sit down and make a deal and you've got to compromise. And uh, so far, they haven't felt the need to do that on these issues. Currently writing a brief on tax credits, Bill, as you know. So thank you for the overview. I'm frantically taking notes right now. Uh, But Bill and Scott, thanks again for a great episode. Slightly longer than usual, but I think it's a good sacrifice to make given how much ground we have. We we don't make the sacrifice. Our listeners make the sacrifice. They have lots of controls on their their system in, in case they get bored. So Exactly. Maybe they can fast track it, but I think they won't want to. Anyways, I will see you guys in another episode. Thanks very much. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.